Hi everyone. Lovely to be with you this morning. I, uh, I just so encourage you to really invite your friends along to these stories of Grace Days. I have like a few highlights in my church calendar, things that I love, and this is always such a faith-building and fun morning to hear of all of God's grace around us. Um, so I wonder what your favourite celebration of the year is. Maybe it's Christmas time. I think for a lot of people it's Christmas. Or maybe it's your birthday, or maybe you're like just a massive grump and you don't like any of those things. Um, For my five-year-old son, hands down, Easter wins every single time. There is no competition for him. There is nothing that makes him as happy as a garden full of hidden Easter eggs. And my kids are absolute masters at dragging stuff out as well. So we will have an Easter egg hunt on Sunday, and then they will rehide them, and we'll have another, and then we hide them, and another, and again, and again, and again. And the whole thing goes on for like two weeks. Um, And he loves it so much that he actually wanted to have an Easter egg hunt for his birthday, which is completely fine, except the fact that his birthday's in November. (laughs) And because I'm a total mug, I was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Do you have any idea how hard it is to find Easter eggs? in November. <laughs> so I looked and looked. I finally found some online and got them for like, you know, 200 pounds for three pounds worth of Easter egg hunts. But he was absolutely fine. Um, and of course, as Christians, Easter for us is a time of like the ultimate Thanksgiving and celebration, isn't it? And next weekend, we are going to be really, really celebrating this. It's when we celebrate that Jesus, he didn't just die for us, but that he rose again, and in doing so, he overcame and he conquered death, whatever, so that we could have eternal life with him. And because we believe this, we get to celebrate this every single week, no matter what the calendar says it is. But next week, we're going to be kind of giving it some extra oomph as we celebrate that. But before we get into that next week, this week, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at the events leading up to that time of Jesus' death. Because loads happened in the 24 hours before this, and and we can learn a lot from it, so we don't just want to rush past that. And we're going to be spending a bit of time this morning reflecting on how his disciples, and Peter in particular, handled the events of this night, and what we can learn from them, and what it meant for us. And so I do kind of just want to forewarn you a little bit, right? These passages that we're going to be looking at this morning are, are tough. They are, I think if you... If you love Jesus in any way, they're they're really uncomfortable to read. We're going to be looking at how he was let down by his friends and how he was betrayed. But actually, God, being God, he just uses this betrayal as another way to demonstrate his incredible mercy and grace and loveliness to us. Um, But before I get started on the passage, because we've been looking at Exodus up until now, we haven't been looking at this, I'm just going to do kind of a quick recap so we know where where we are in the kind of story up till now. So let me just set the scene. Jesus has spent the last three years ministering throughout Israel. He has been teaching people all about God. He's been performing incredible miracles. He has uh, healing people left, right, and center, and he's chosen 12 disciples. Is this echoey, or is it just me? Isbeth, shall I change over to the microphone? Have we got it? Oh, carry on. Okay, sorry. Sorry. So yeah, he's chosen these 12 disciples who have been with him every step of the way. They're like his inner circle, his absolute best friends. And they have been with him and they've seen everything that Jesus has done. And along the way, Jesus has also upset some people. He, uh, the high priests and the rule keepers 
of the Jewish faith really hate him because he's coming and he's like disrupting their power and they are trying really hard to kind of take him down. And then just before we join the passage that we're going to enter into this morning, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he is being celebrated as a king. The people, they love him, right? By and large, they want to get to know him. They want to touch him. They want to be around him. And he enters Jerusalem. And have you ever seen those scenes, right, where a bus full of football heroes comes back to their city after they've been victorious and all the people come, like, out into the crowd, into the streets and are celebrating them, yeah? And there's this massive air of celebration. Microphone, okay. Sorry, one second. Imagine the football bus. <laughs> How's that? Is that better? Oh, that feels better to my ears. <laughs> right, let me just get rid of this as well. Can I just pass that to you, Steve? Thank you. Right. So, yes, yeah, so there's this massive, like, air of celebration that's going on. Let me just find where I was. So sorry. Bum, bum, bum. Right, yeah, so a big celebration. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, and there's this, like, an air of anticipation that's going on. And then Jesus, he goes up into a private room with his disciples after this, with his closest friends, and he shares the Last Supper with him. And so that's where we're going to join the passage after this has happened this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew 26, verse 31 to start with. There's this kind of air of celebration, anticipation. Something big is going to happen, and everyone can feel it. And then Jesus says this to them in complete contrast. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Well, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You see, Peter and his, uh, and his friends, they're indignant at the mere idea that they would fall away or reject Jesus. They are his closest friends, right? They have seen things that they could never even have imagined. And they're beginning to understand that this isn't just some man, right? This is the son of God. This is who they have been waiting for. And they love him. And they really, really, truly love him. And Peter, in particular, is very vocal about this. He says, even if the rest of them fall away, not me, never me. I love you. He thinks he can withstand whatever trials are coming, but he doesn't understand. He has no idea what is about to happen. And Jesus responds to this by saying to Peter, like, mate, this very night, tonight, before the rooster crows, like before dawn happens, you will disown me not once, but three times. And even then, Peter, he argues with Jesus. He thinks he's right. He thinks he knows better at this point. Let's read on. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me. 
yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is a heartbreaking passage. And here we are given the most privileged, unique insight into Jesus' most inner turmoil and into his most intimate relationship that he has with his Father, See, up until now, the Gospels, they've given us like glimpses of Jesus's inner thoughts. We've seen him love, we've seen him have anger, we've seen him have joy and how he feels about things. But this is very different. There is no glossing over what he's going on here. There's no like stip upper lip Englishness. Oh, it's all fine, really, even though it's anything but fine. See, the moment of Jesus's death and his crucifixion was approaching very soon and he knew it. And although this was Jesus' whole purpose for being, when it came to it, he didn't really want it. Jesus is so fully human in this moment. And in his distress, what he craved was human companionship. What he wanted, his mates. He wanted his friends. What an immeasurable privilege for them to be asked into this time of extreme like, vulnerability, So he asks them to be with them. He tells them, he spells it out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. He couldn't be clearer to them. But Peter, he falls so, so short of what Jesus asks of him because not even an hour later, Jesus goes back and finds him asleep. You see, Jesus, he he wanted to be surrounded with people who loved him and they failed him. And every time I read this passage, do you know, I... I cry because he needed them and they let him down in Jesus' darkest hours. Now, I think we all know what it's like, don't we, to be so tired that you can barely keep your eyes open. I remember back when I was a student, the nights when I'd be up all night long writing papers because I hadn't organised myself properly or all night out dancing and then the next day you've got to get up and go to work or go to lectures or whatever. Dead on your feet. (laughs) And if ever you've had a newborn baby, you will know what exhaustion feels like. But Peter, he hadn't been up, as far as we know, for the last two months with a colicky baby. right? It wasn't even the end of the night. This was the beginning of the evening, and he couldn't stay awake. He hadn't pulled an all-nighter. It was literally just evening now. See, Peter, he's already, he's already failing in his, in, a, in his ability to withstand temptation as he was warned before by Jesus and this is before any real persecution or hardship even arrives and I wonder how do you think Peter felt felt in that moment when Jesus comes back and he's like dude really one hour one hour I've left you and you'd be forgiven wouldn't you for thinking Peter would be like oh no yeah I've messed up I won't do that again but he does he goes on to do it three more times 
And I wonder who thinks to themselves, I would never have done that. Not me. If you read that passage, you're like, yeah, that was brutal, Peter. And do you know what? If you think that way, you wouldn't be alone in doing so. Because I have to say, every time I read this, that's me. I'm like, I would never do that. Oh, Peter. But actually, I think we can relate to Peter a lot more than perhaps we first think. Because if you have ever let somebody down, if you've ever not turned up for a friend when they needed you, and do you know who amongst us hasn't let someone down at some point, even if it was unintentionally doing so? And so Jesus, he's left to wrestle with his emotions alone, and his prayer to his heavenly Father just reveals his terrible suffering in that moment because he knew that the agony that was coming was worse than death because he was going to pay for all sin by being separated from God. The sinless Son of God took our sins upon himself to save us from that same suffering and separation that we deserved. And he took it on himself instead. And Jesus knew what lay ahead of him and he knew the reason for it. And he knew that by dying on the cross, we could be restored to God for eternity and stand blameless before him because of what Jesus was going to do for that. But even so, even knowing this incredible salvation that was going to happen because of this, his struggle was real. His struggle was intense that evening. And so while Peter slept, Jesus was left alone and he wept. And he asked God to take away what lay ahead of him if it was at all possible. But at the end of it, there was no question for Jesus that God's will had to take priority, no matter how enormous the cost was going to be. So let's read on. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Judas, Jesus said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, they seized Jesus and arrested him, and with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I can't call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now, we're told in other gospel accounts of this night that the one who pulled out the sword and cut off the servant's ear was, of course, none other than Peter. And remember that conversation they've had just previously in the evening where Jesus had told Peter that he would let him down and Peter was adamant that he would not. Well, we know from his reaction during that conversation that Peter was really upset. And so I wonder, as this evening was going on, whether that conversation was kind of still rattling around in his head as he sees Jesus being arrested and bound. So whether he acts just out of impulse or he's like, no, I am going to prove to Jesus that I've got this, he takes out his sword and he attacks the servant. 
takes his ear off. Can you like imagine the chaos that must have ensued? I can imagine, obviously, the servant's going to be screaming, right? I don't know how much an ear bleeds, but I can imagine a lot. It's probably like blood spurting everywhere. And Jesus just like, oh, man, Peter, <laughs> Peter, come on. Like, I'm literally about to die for this guy. Hasn't he been listening to anything? It's not how my kingdom comes. But Jesus is so gracious to him. And in Luke's account of this night, we see that Jesus immediately reaches out and he heals the servant ear. And then he says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? He's told them. He's been telling them all night long that this moment is coming. And he adds to him, do you not think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Now, in the Roman army of the time, a legion was a division of up to 6,000 men. Jesus is talking about 72,000 angels, right? He does not need Peter's dinky little sword to protect him. It's almost laughable in hindsight, right? But it was no laughing matter for Peter he was devastated. He'd been told he would fall, that he would betray Jesus, and he's already let him down by falling asleep no less than three times when Jesus needed him the most. And now he was disappointing him in his actions. And he hasn't even started denying him yet, right? Peter is really not having a good evening. Not as bad as Jesus' evening, to be fair, but nonetheless, it was still pretty bad. And then Jesus is arrested and bound, and we're told then, all the disciples deserted him. All of them. So Peter's little spurt of courage that he had earlier with the authorities is over. And no one had the courage to stand there with him anymore. And again, do you know, I am left every time I read that asking the question, what would I have done? What would you do? Do you stand with him? Or would you have been like Peter and left? And then what happens next is Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the high priest where they effectively put Jesus on, a, on a, like a sham trial. They try and catch him out and they spit on him and they beat him and they slap him. I told you this morning's passage is quite hard, but it's worth sitting with it for a little while. And Peter, he follows at a distance and he's outside the courtyard of the high priest. He sits down with the guards to see the outcome of this. We're going to read on. I'm just going to read this bit from Luke, the next part. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a female servant, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man, he was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else on seeing him said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, surely this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And at that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed and the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he wept out, sorry, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Oh, Peter, 
what are you doing? This man has not only seen Jesus walk on water, he has walked on water with him. It's incomprehensible how this can happen. But I just want to take a moment to kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what's happened this evening with Peter tonight. Because do you know what? He didn't start off the evening by denying Jesus. He started off the evening proclaiming his love of him. When he was up in the room with his disciples, he was in a safe space. He was with his friends who loved Jesus. It was very similar, in a way, of being where we are at church on a Sunday morning. Right? We stand here on a Sunday, and if you know Jesus, you are here declaring that you love him. And it's kind of it's easy to do that, right? You're surrounded with other people who feel the same. It's easy to talk about God and how much you love him here. And then Peter went from there. He, he, then he gave into temptation and what we could kind of small call like the smaller things. He let Jesus down by failing to stay awake. And it was brutal, right, given the circumstances. But it was kind of forgivable if you're feeling generous. We've all been tired. And then he take, makes like a total mess of things by taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting Jesus. Again, like idiot Peter yeah but okay fine we can live with that and then he starts denying Jesus and he doesn't even realize he's doing it he doesn't realize these denials ramp up as the evening progresses until in the end it takes Jesus to point it out to him to look at him and then he knows you see Christians who um, deny Jesus rarely Rarely set out to do so on purpose. I have absolutely no problem standing here in church talking to you guys on a Sunday morning about how much I love God, about what God's done in our lives. I find it easier standing here preaching to you than I do talking to a hairdresser who I've never met before, whose name I don't even know, about the fact that I'm going to Sunday, so we're going to church on a Sunday when she asks what my weekend's like. I mean, it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. You see, it doesn't take much to start with the little things, to start pretending not to know him. It might be like avoiding conversations. When opportunities to discuss faith that arise in the office or at the school gate or whatever, just walking away or remaining silent. And with only a little bit more pressure, people can soon be persuaded to flatly deny their relationship with Jesus. And I just want to say, if you find that you're kind of subtly diverting conversations away from your faith or from church, then it's worth having like an honest appraisal with yourself on where you are with that and asking God to show you what's going on in your heart. Because on the third time that Peter denied Jesus, the passage tells us that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine for what moment what, what that gaze must have felt like? I just think Peter must have felt like vomiting. And we're told that when the rooster crowed, he remembered what Jesus had said and he wept bitterly. Now, we are going to take a moment, we're going to watch a video which is a reenactment of what happened this night. And I think it's really helpful to bring home what Peter was probably going through this evening. It's tough, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard to watch. It's hard to feel and imagine that going on with Jesus, who we love. But, you know, often I think we don't even know when we've hurt somebody 
Sometimes we can live with like a ball of bitterness inside us when someone has hurt us and we can wonder how they continue to live their lives, apparently clueless about what we've done. You see, the first time that Peter denied Jesus, he didn't get it, okay? And the second time, he didn't still seem to realize that he had done anything wrong. Sometimes we have no idea what the implications of our sin are or realize that we've even done it, but then the rooster crowed, And Peter knew because Jesus revealed it to him. But do you know what, guys? God never, ever exposes the things that we've done wrong to shame us. He exposes them to restore us. He never exposes to shame us. He only exposes to restore us. You see, Peter, he betrayed his friend. He betrayed the king of kings, right? But here's the thing. When he was faced with the implications of his sins, he turned to Jesus. Okay, now we don't see very much of Peter over the next few hours and days as Jesus goes on to be crucified and buried. But when we fast forward three more days, when Mary, she goes to the tomb and she sees that the the stone has been rolled away and she goes straight to Peter and John and she says to them, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb and we don't know where he is. And Peter, he jumps up and he runs to the tomb to see for himself. He's looking for Jesus. And Peter didn't understand yet what had happened to him, but he still ran towards him. He had to get to him. And then a few days later, the disciples, they were out fishing, right? And Jesus is standing on the shore. And as soon as Peter realized who it was, he didn't even wait for the boat to turn around. He jumps out of the boat and he swims to him. He has to get to Jesus. And it's so beautiful and I think it can be easy to miss like the magnitude of what happens because the Bible tells us what happens next right we know that death cannot keep him we know that Jesus beats death and he rises again and he lives but Peter he thought that his friend was dead and that he'd messed up and then there he is and oh my goodness Peter is all in for Jesus And next week, we're going to be learning more about how Jesus restores Peter just so beautifully. So I'm not going to go into it much. But Peter declares his love to him, and they are restored. Their relationship is. And and Peter, he goes on to be one of the pillars of the early church. And he did find his courage, right? So much so that he stood his faith, and he was eventually executed by the emperor Nero. But, you know, the glory of this is that God can use whatever you have done, whatever you have messed up or whatever has gone wrong in your life to weave the most beautiful story into his kingdom. Because we are more like Peter than I think we want to admit, right? We are weak. Sometimes we are frightened. Regularly, we put our own needs first. But, you know, if Peter can restore and forgive Peter, so if Jesus can restore and forgive Peter, he can definitely do it in your life too. Do you know that there is nothing that you can do, there is nowhere that you can go that can separate you from the love of Jesus? Nothing. Do you know that? It's a truth. The Bible tells us that, uh, can you click forward for me, please? Thank you. There we are. The Bible tells us in Romans that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing news? See, Jesus, he never stopped loving Peter, despite his total humanness, right? Despite his flawed, idiotic, selfish self. And my friends, the same is true for us today. Now, we are going to be taking communion in a minute. Actually, does the band want to come on up? That would be great. And as we take communion, we're going to be thinking, we think about that night. We think about the night where Jesus was in anguish because he knew what was coming, and yet he still went to the cross for us. And we think of all that he has done for us through his death, through his body being broken and through his blood being poured out on the cross for us so that we can be restored to him. And I would encourage you this morning, once you've gone and you've taken the juice and the bread, to bring it back to your seat and to take some time with God and ask him to show you if there's anything that he wants to bring into the light, anywhere that he wants to restore you to him this morning. As if you feel that Jesus is turning that gaze on you this morning, then my friends, pay attention, okay? Because God never uses that to shame us. He only ever wants to use that to restore us to him. We saw from Peter's story how Jesus doesn't highlight the sin in our life but to condemn us, but just to bring us back to him. And this is why Christ died, yeah? This is the whole reason that he endured all of this evening so that we could be restored. And Peter himself, later on in the Bible, he tells us that Christ died... What's was coming up? Remember, that Christ died for sins once and for all, the, unright, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So I'm going to pray for us in a minute, and then we can go and take... We've got um, four stations around the room. The one at the back over on that end is for gluten-free, if anybody needs that. It's juice, alcoholic-free. Um, but go and take that and bring it back to your seats. But I'm just going to pray first. Lord... As we prepare our hearts for the amazing celebration of Easter, when you defeated death and you rose again, we pause to spend some time reflecting on the incredible grace and mercy of this. To of us who have betrayed you, to us who, who have denied you, and yet while we were still sinners, while we were still denying you, you died for us on the cross because of your incredible love for us. And so as we take the bread and the wine this morning, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible compassion and we thank you for your forgiveness and for your restoration so that we could know you, so that you, we could be brought to know God. Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen.